So this afternoon's talk is on identity, what we take to be ourself. We identify with actually quite a lot of things. First of all, with our body. Many of us uh, have a sense of ownership and identity around that. And also various aspects of our mind. So we identify with what we like and dislike, with our particular way of perceiving the world, our life story, the story of me, our values and our political views, our many social roles, and we even identify with the sense of knowing all of this. You know, I'm the one who experiences all of these other things. And at different times, it's different ones of those, right? So it's, we do this identification in a kind of a shifting collage with different aspects becoming prominent at different times. So the Buddha talked a lot about this phenomenon. He called it self-view, or in Pali it's Sakaya Ditti, the self-view or the, it's actually sort of the doctrine of self. It's the, the idea that there is something here, substantial, that can be identified. And why is this talked about so much in the teachings? It's quite simple. There's quite a lot of suffering associated with our self-view. I see some nods when I say that. <laughs> um, so we know this. You know, we know that this is a little bit of a challenge for us. Um, so I named a lot of different dimensions of body and mind that we tend to identify with. But uh, for this talk today, I wanted to focus in a bit on our, particularly on our social roles and our patterns of behavior, which are the, um, yeah, which are prominent for all of us. So this is essentially the sense of being someone who's playing a role in the world. I think it's a type of self that we all feel. So I'm reading a book right now by Mingyur Rinpoche. It's his new book. He is a um, Tibetan teacher. He's a Tibetan monk and he's a high lama. And he had lived his whole life as an honored spiritual master. He was identified in childhood as being the reincarnation of some famous master. And so he received all kinds of education and training. He um, had lived a pretty comfortable life because of this, although he did train in a monastery and do a traditional three-year retreat. Um, but he began to realize when he was in his mid-30s and was living as this exalted lama um, that he was starting to get identified with his role as a teacher and a dharma master. And he sensed that it was constricting him to always be traveling first class, always have an attendant, always have people bowing to him, um, the head of monasteries and training all these people. And so he decided to see what it would be like for him to just give all that up. He literally snuck out of his monastery uh, in the middle of the night to undertake a solo wandering pilgrimage for 4.5 years in order to free himself from attachment to his identity. This happened just a few years ago. By the way, this is not an ancient story. So he writes, Even though I had been meditating for my entire life, I was now starting out on a different kind of retreat. My titles and roles would get tossed onto the pyre 
I would burn up the coarse outer social protections and strategies in order to be free, in order to live every day with a newly born engagement with whatever would arise. And his thought at the beginning was, let's see what happens. <laughs> so that's pretty impressive, I think, for someone who had had such a, a life like that. He wanted to live as a wandering sadhu in the streets of India, live on the streets and be a beggar. It's significant, though, that he couldn't abandon all of that at once. He thought he could. He thought he could just walk out of the monastery, go to the train station, sleep on the floor, become a street person. But he discovered that he couldn't do it. I mean, he was actually um, felt too agitated, felt too uncomfortable the first time he was out there. And he had brought some money with him. So he um, went and got a hotel room. Well, it was a dormitory room. And he was wise about that. I mean, he realized it wouldn't have been compassionate to try to push himself too hard. In his words, I had grown into these identities, and I had to grow out of them. There's something very wise in that. We didn't become who we are overnight. We've had decades to grow into the roles, the identities. Now, I know they sometimes change suddenly, of course. But we've had a long time. Um, and so it takes some time also to see through them, to dismantle them, to become free of them. And that's a lot of the process that we're doing, and that's why it takes a while. Now, you know, part of Minya Rinpoche's story is that he nearly died from food poisoning once he ran out of money and, didn't, and had to live on, really had to live on the street. Um, but I want to, and you know, this near-death experience was profoundly liberating, but uh, I want to focus more today on social roles and patterns of behavior, looking at that aspect, because we all have them. We all have the things that we're comfortable with also, our comfortable aspects of our lifestyle that are going pretty well, that we're planning to just kind of keep doing forever. And when we have to change these things abruptly, it can be quite difficult, as we, as we know. Everyone in this room has had some kind of a disruption at some point in their life. So this is um, also some words of wisdom on this from Mingyur Rinpoche. We are all transformed through love and loss, through relationships, work, kindness, and tragedy. But we get scared of change because when we identify with a pattern of behavior, giving it up can feel like death itself. Often the inarticulate dread of distant physical death gets mixed up with a closer, daily, more pressing, though unacknowledged, fear of the disintegration of the self. On some level, we know that the labels that construct our identities are not real. And we may fear, perhaps more than physical death itself, that these labels might fall off like a series of dissolving masks, exposing us in ways that we are not willing to risk. You know they're not totally real because they were constructed. And if they were constructed, they can be deconstructed. And what if that were to happen? Feel a little moment of fear at that idea? So we need practice. We need practice to learn how to release the grip that we maintain on our comfortable ways of being, on our identities. 
we can practice in the external world, in our daily life. Like in your Rinpoche, for example, but we don't have to be that dramatic. Um, Many of you have, actually everyone in this room, has never seen me wearing a dress, and I am for today. It's not a huge risk for me, you know, um, because it's a very socially acceptable thing to do. And yet, um, you know, it's not my usual thing. So how does that feel? And also I noticed that um, there's a little bit of response to it, right? Because it's different. And so, um, you know, you're all subtly conditioning me also through your response to feel like, oh, this is something different. And this is an interesting phenomenon, right? That our, our roles, since they're socially constructed, they're totally dependent on the people around us also to be maintained or to be challenged. And so there's a way in which breaking out of our identities is harder also because of the people around us conditioning us to keep them, to not change. This is a, this becomes an interesting aspect of practice at some point when we start to tap into how interconnected we are, it actually matters what we're doing to other people through our response to them. This is a deeper level of ethics, of non-harming. What are we putting out into the world, given that we know it's going to be felt and absorbed by the people around us? So, I also want to talk about how we can practice on the cushion with our identities, which we can. So I'll talk about both these kinds of practice today, external world practice and cushion practice. So how do we practice with identity? In order to do this, we have to investigate. We need to see what identity is, and also the process by which it's been formed. How do we go about grasping things and identifying with things, particularly our habits and our social rules? So identification, to place it within the Buddhist teachings, is part of the second noble truth the cause of dukkha. (laughs) Um, You'll be hearing about the Four Noble Truths tomorrow. But identifying means grasping onto some experience, some aspect of experience, as me or mine. And just as with all kinds of clinging, the process of releasing is to see it and feel it fully. To step away just enough that we aren't totally enmeshed, but to still be in direct contact so that we can feel it so we can feel whatever's going on with it. And just to give a preview, this is one of those things that you'll need to see for yourself also, there are two key qualities that come along with identification. One of them is tightness or tension of some kind, and the other is a distortion of some kind. And we have to see, we have to see these in operation to understand what's going on in this process. So I'll share an experience that I had. One time I was on retreat and I was doing walking meditation in the parking lot by a row of cars. And I had no particular thought about the cars. I just came out and was walking there for some time. And then, um, unbidden, I had the memory come into my mind uh, that that was actually the row that I had parked in a number of days earlier. And sure enough, my car was one of the cars that I was walking by. 
And in a kind of surreal way, um, one of the cars kind of raised itself up out of this otherwise totally neutral row of cars to be identified as my car. <laughs> and suddenly it looked different than the other cars. Uh, it took on kind of a significance uh, in my mind. And it was fascinating because I've been mindful for some days and so I could watch that process happening in real time, sort of standing out from the others like a beacon. And it was fascinating because there was a tension associated with it. You know, there was this sort of twist uh, and this distortion towards seeing one of the cars as different from all the others. And of course, because it had been some days, I checked the tires to see if they were still inflated. And I didn't check the tires on the cars that weren't mine, right? So there's already some implications for compassion here with what we care about when we think it's ours versus someone else's. So that was an interesting experience. Um, I could really see this, this tension and this distortion that comes from identifying one thing. And once I'd seen this on retreat with the clarity of mindfulness that comes, um, then I could see it better in daily life. It's, you know, it's more obscured with our regular consciousness, but I, I could see it. So there isn't a really a lot of dukkha associated with that particular example. There's nothing wrong at all with um, seeing a car as mine, because uh, it's true on one level. That was my car. I had the key to it, and it was the one I was going to use to get home, and that's actually useful. You have to know which car is yours when you leave the retreat. So there's not, you know, there's not really any suffering associated with that necessarily. But in other contexts, we can see how limiting it is to zero in on one thing as me or mine. You know, there's some situation that is, you know, just as it is. But so it's open. It has a lot of possibilities. But then through our identification, it distorts. It grows rigid it collapses down into some smaller version of reality. This is what identification does. So just as an example, theoretically, um, imagine that you walk into a room uh, that you haven't been in before, and you have no particular need to expect anything in that room. You could be anything. You could do anything. But probably within an instant of walking into the room, you fall away from the open space of possibility and you fall into some habitual pattern, like for example, seeing what's wrong with something. Some of us have a kind of a walk around with that pattern. So you walk into this room that's vibrant and alive with possibility and what you see is the crack in the wall and the spot on the carpet. Why? Mostly because it's a habit. You know, that's, um, that's what we do. We could have done anything, but we do something that we habitually do. So this is how we can see in everyday life, our habits and our, our uh, identities in operation. Now fortunately, meditation is really good at helping us to loosen up from these tendencies, or to loosen up at least from the ones that are causing us limitation and suffering. Um, you know, obviously there are ways to be in the world that are, uh, like with the example with the car, and of course in front of our other relationships where identification or seeing things that way is not automatically big suffering, but a lot of it is. So this is from the teacher, Jason Siff. Peeling back the delusion of selfhood, the limitations of the mind are known, found in the recurring patterns of thought, emotion, and behavior. 
The patterning mechanism is what we are dismantling in our meditation practice, taking it apart piece by piece, seeing how we succumb to the pull of our partner or mate, friends, family, groups, community, and society to form our perceptions, ideas, and views. You move from the solitude of meditation to the enmeshment with the world made up of other minds, including your own, and then back into solitude when you meditate again. And that is how meditation can slowly lead to loosening the bonds of thinking familiar thoughts and gradually move towards seeing for yourself what is wiser and more compassionate. So as we move away from having to be a certain way, falling into these habitual patterns, we open to something that he says tantalizingly is wiser and more compassionate. You know, there's so much possibility for being in other ways. Um, so note the phrase that he used at the beginning, the limitations of the mind are known, found in the recurring patterns of thought, emotion, and behavior. I think we know these patterns. You know, we have some sense of them in our own mind. Why? Because we sit with them in meditation and we watch them again and again. There's that story again. There's that pattern again. There's my tendency to start out by judging or my tendency to want things or whatever it is. Um, there are, it's very helpful to start seeing these things as limitations. There are myriad ways that we take some kind of a fixed position in our mind. We take a stance on our views, our values, our emotions and ways of acting. And when those are grasped, then they, they really limit us. So that's not to say that we never take a stand. It's not to say that we never have any emotions. It's just that within them, we allow ourselves more choices than our habits would normally allow us. There's a sutta in the Buddhist teachings called the Brahmajala Sutta, in which the Buddha defines 62 views that people at this time held <laughs> regarding various things like the past, the future, the self, and Nibbana. And he criticizes all of them as being mere creations of the mind, arising essentially through contact with the six sense bases. <laughs> Bob talked about those this morning in the guided meditation. We have the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the tasting, the touching, and the thinking. That's how we have our interface with the world. And through these, we end up forming. These are the conditions that help form all of our views and values. It's interesting to check for yourself if this is true, If you to check if when you have a view or something that you feel strongly about, trace it back to its origin. My guess is that it comes back to, at some level, the feeling tone, something that is pleasant or unpleasant, that you want or don't want because of how it feels. So these conditions, like for example, that example I gave before with the car, how did that car come to be my car? Because of the memory. You know, it, wasn't, it was not my car when I walked back and forth and then I had the memory, <coughs> oh, I think where I parked. And then suddenly it was my car. So there was a condition there for me to see it that way. <coughs> So from that sutta, when all of these speculators, having fixed views, put forward views in 62 ways, 
That is all conditioned by sense contact. They are all trapped in the net with its 62 divisions, and wherever they emerge and try to get out, they are caught in this net. It's an interesting image. So there are these views, remember the self-view, Sakaya Ditti. Ditti means view, or actually doctrine. And it's also a net that we're trapped in, kind of enmeshed in. There's another sutta that uses the same net image. It says, it's from the Dhammapada, there's no fire like lust, there's no grip like hatred, there's no net like delusion, and there's no river like craving. So this net. So what to do then? How do we practice with this? So as, as always, the practice is to turn toward our, our identities and feel them more clearly. So one property of identity is that it brings tension, and this can be felt. But the tension prevents us from wanting to feel it completely, right? We just sort of don't want to go into things that feel tense, but we, we should. And then the distortion prevents us from seeing it clearly. But again, we, we need to look carefully in order that we can. So we need to find ways to engage with wisdom, mindfulness, and steadiness. So here's one approach. One approach is to directly engage by challenging our views and our social roles. This is often done in practice off the cushion, like Nina Rinpoche did, like I'm doing here, wearing something different than I usually do. It's fun, actually. I would encourage you to go wear something that you don't usually wear. <laughs> you could try it tomorrow. Or, you know, other, other ways to do something different. And then we see, you know, we see what happens in the mind when we do that. Um, a second approach, which is uh, more often done on the cushion, is to use our strength of awareness to enter and stay with these feelings of tension and limitation that identities create. When we see a story arising or when we feel that habitual way that we think about ourselves, to really stay with that and to feel what that feels like to think of ourselves as, um, I don't know, maybe we think of ourselves as an angry person or we think of ourselves as stupid or we think of ourselves as amazing. You know, whatever it is, however we're limiting ourselves, really feel what that feels like. So I have a quote here about this practice from Ken McLeod. He, he depicts this limitation as a box. That's the image that he uses. And I like that because we talk about putting people in boxes, right? And he has a practice suggestion, which is to fully feel the box. So, you are in a box. If you take the box apart, it remakes itself as you do so, and you are back in it. If you step out of it, you somehow back, end up back in it too, like Alice in Through the Looking Glass. If you make an effort to understand it intellectually, you are in the world it defines, and you are still in it. If you try to ignore it, you live in the world it defines, and you never leave. If you try to change it, it restricts your movement and confines you. If you try to rise above it, you find that you are tied to it. If you analyze it, you may work through an intricate maze, but the maze leads you right back where you started, in the box. <laughs> the box consumes you. It is all you experience. You want to get out, but there is no door, no window, no exit of any kind. What do you do? Start from where you are. You are in the box. Open to the experience of the box as best you can. 
don't try to change or control your experience because that just reinforces the box. Take care to distinguish between resignation and acceptance. Resignation is a form of ignoring. You remain confined and defined by the box. Acceptance is opening to what you are experiencing without trying to change it. When you open to the experience of the box, you are maybe at first overwhelmed and fall out of attention. The trick is to open to the experience without being overwhelmed. Open a little, even just for a moment, and then stop. Then do it again. Gradually build capacity. As you do this, you experience the box more and more vividly, more and more clearly, and that is where things begin to change. When you practice this way, a certain kind of seeing develops. That seeing holds no position, not even wanting to change the box. And in that experience of the box, awake, vivid, clear, and open, things change in their own time and in their own way. Primarily what changes is how you experience the box, and that changes everything else in your life. Now someday, this box will completely disappear. All the boxes will disappear, even just for a moment. And then we know for sure that everything that is of the nature to arise is also of the nature to pass away. We can never believe in a permanent fixed self anymore. The Buddha said if there were even one speck in the entire universe that were permanent, liberation would not be possible. But because there is no speck in the entire universe that is permanent, then liberation is possible. But even long before that, our relationship to the box of identity can change in very beneficial ways, if we're willing to open to it and feel it. Now what's present when the box is not there is quite amazing. Open, free, responsive. Such a mind is light, flexible, unsticky, and best of all, it's available. It's available to offer love, compassion, wisdom, patience, generosity. It's peaceful. The peace that the Buddha was pointing toward is much different than finding the right self, finding our true self, finding the right political views, finding the right life philosophy of some kind. It's a peace that's not dependent on any of those things. So Mingyur Rinpoche wanted to title his book Dying Every Day, but the publisher nixed this idea, <laughs> probably thinking that such a book wouldn't sell very well. Um, so the book is actually called In Love with the World. Uh, but I think they're not so different, actually. Maybe it's similar, dying every day and in love with the world. It's a good idea, dying every day. You know, when we die, we'll have to give up all of those social roles and identities all at once. It's better to have practiced ahead of time. Because he couldn't do it all at once, and it's going to be hard for us too. So I recommend this kind of practice, practicing with identity, both in the outer world and on the cushion, finding a way to challenge our habitual selves every day, 
and finding a way to sit with that tension of identity in order to slowly, slowly dismantle that pattern of behavior. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.